I'm going to do something a bit unusual with the text this morning, so I'm going to take a little bit more time here at the beginning to set things up and explain why. Uh, normally, as you know, um, if, if you've been around here and, and my preaching in the past, um, I strive to preach through the details of the whole passage, uh, but today I'm just going to be focusing on one verse from what I just read, um, in fact, just one concept from this passage. Um, and the reason why is that this is the second time in Acts that details the prodigious generosity of the early church community. We looked at that in depth in Acts 2. But the first time I spoke of it, it was in more general terms. But this time we are let in on more details. And because of that, it presses in more than normal on how real their generosity and giving was Look at verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. What we see here is the wealthy among the community. And I suppose if you were to ask me who is the targeted audience of this, I think the passage asks me to preach specifically to that, to the wealthy among us. Of course it applies, as I said in my prayer, of course it applies across the board in every different situation. I know we've got a lot of uh, college students here and children here. Um, you all don't feel very wealthy, I'm assuming. But, um, but, but it applies everywhere. But this, this idea that the wealthy in the community, the land and homeowners, literally liquidating their assets to give to the early church. In, our, in, in their context, property was security. So this would be akin to emptying out your retirement savings to give it to the church. Now, this kind of generosity, then we read this in the New Testament and in Acts, and it will come up again. I mean, i got to keep preaching the money sermons because the, 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 the scriptures keep on coming back to it in Acts. So this will, this will come up again, but when we read this stuff, it just feels so foreign to us. But I have a suspicion, and it's this. We don't want it to be. In my conversations with Christians... What I gather is that we want to be generous in such a way that seems foolish to others. But we struggle to do it. I think Western Christians who have so much, and here I am talking to all of us, we are all so blessed. Western Western Christians who have so much struggle with kind of a nagging, constant tension in their souls about what to do with so much. I know I do. As Mark said, yesterday is my birthday. I'm now 40, which means I'm finally old enough to be your pastor. So that's good. Um, You hired me at 32. What were you thinking? Eight years of of doing this. And I finally feel like I got past that threshold where I'm old enough to be doing this job. And 40 is one of those birthdays that, that feels a bit like a turning point. And I I did spend some time this week in reflection, both definitely in thanksgiving um, for God's just abundant goodness to me and my family, but also in conviction 
Um, how do I want the next 40 years, if the Lord grants it, how do I want the next 40 years to look differently? And one of the things at the top of my list was the issue of generosity. Now, we tithe. We actually give above and beyond our tithe in ways that, that does hurt sacrificially. We open our home and our resources to those in need. So on the outside looking in, we certainly seem like a generous family, but I want more. I, I, I want generosity that's crazy, like in our passage. I want generosity that's as crazy as the gospel that I proclaim. And my suspicion is that you do too. If you're a Christian with the Holy Spirit inside of you, I know what's going on in your soul. You have so much. And there is this part of you that wants to leave this sacrificial legacy of generosity, and yet it never seems to manifest itself, does it? It remains kind of, for American Christians, it, it, amain, it remains this kind of conviction on the back burner, a change that you want to make, a change that you know you ought to make, but for some reason, it's just a change that we never make. We never get to it. Why is that? I think it's because of fear. I think we want to do it, but we're scared to actually do it. Scared of what it will mean for my lifestyle. Scared of what it will mean for my children. Scared of what it will mean for my future security. We want to be this, but we're scared to become this. And this is why I find our passage this morning so compelling. I don't need to exegete the finer details of having to explain what it means when they said that they had everything in common and none were without need and answering the socialism question and all that because I did that when I preached Acts 2. This, this passage almost mirrors that same passage in Acts 2. And you can go back and listen to that if you want. But there is one unique point about this passage that I want to focus on. One detail that is included that I think rightly understood and internalized can overcome our generosity fears that we all share and free us up to become the people we long to be. Look with me at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So sandwiched in the middle of these acts of generosity is this little statement. And, and when you look at it exegetically, it's clear that this statement is intended to be both the foundation and motivation of the giving that was taking place in this community. Now, what I found so compelling and couldn't get over this week is that it's a statement on the resurrection it says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Somehow, that testimony to the truth of the resurrection freed this community to give in extravagant ways. And that really struck me this week. Because I'm used to generosity that is grounded in the cross. That connection is really easy to make our assurance of pardon. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that though he's rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. That's easy to preach. Jesus extravagantly gave to you in the cross. Our response is to extravagantly give in his name. Easy connection, good connection. 
But as I have noted several times already in Acts, the early Christian community was a resurrection-centric community. It was because Jesus is risen from the dead that they did everything they did. And that includes their giving. And so I was struck by that. How disproportionately I had contemplated the cross's implication on my giving versus the resurrection. But as I spent time this week doing that, I realized how much there is for us. You see, this is the way I I now view it. The cross produces our motivation to give. And like I said, I think we've got that. I really do. I think we want to be givers like this. But it's the resurrection that actually frees us to give. It's the resurrection that defeats these fears that we all have to actually doing it. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I, I could say so much. I really thought about it a lot this week, but I'm reducing my thoughts down to two. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection Lord Jesus Christ. And because that is true, because the resurrection is true, two things are therefore true. Our generosity is now responsible and our generosity is now rewarded. So responsible and rewarded. Let's look at both. Generosity is responsible. As I've said many times, the unique apologetic that Christianity has is the resurrection. Jesus is risen from the dead. Historical fact. And what this means is that Jesus is actually true. Historical fact. All of his claims are true. Historical fact. That's what the book of Acts is. It is the response to the truth of the resurrection and consequently the truth of Jesus. What caused these early Christians to forsake family and friends, to embrace persecution, even their own martyrdom? What got into these people? Very simple. They were convinced it was true. They did not convert because it seemed like a good idea. It was actually a pretty bad idea in that day. They didn't convert because they found the teachings inspiring or their emotions were stirred in some way. They converted because Jesus rose from the dead and proved himself to be true. And what we see here in our passage is that they were so convinced that this was true that of course they were willing to give any and everything toward the cause. Here's the, here's the connection, okay? We may read this passage and see this as senseless generosity, but to them, the senseless made perfect sense. This is not reckless. This is wise stewardship. This is being perfectly responsible with their money. Why? Because Jesus is risen from the dead. There is absolutely no doubt in their mind that they are giving to the right cause. And there is absolutely no doubt in their mind that this cause will triumph. And I think we would all share the exact same mindset if we were in their shoes. Could you imagine being weeks removed from the resurrection? Could you imagine sitting down and talking with those people who had actual first-hand experience with the risen Jesus. Would that not change everything? Of course it would. It's a new reality that has reconfigured reality as we know it. It is such a radical occurrence 
that it changes things radically so that previously what did seem radical is now the new normal. I know we look at these people liquidating their assets to give it to the church and say, this is crazy. But the point is that it's not crazy or it's as crazy as a dead man coming back to life. If that's true, if the resurrection is true, then you are being most responsible when you give irresponsibly to the resurrected man. You see, when it comes to our finances, we rightly want to be good stewards. This is true of all of us wherever we are with our wealth. Whether that be purchasing a quality product that is worth the money or donating to something that is a worthy cause, we don't want to see our money wasted. And that's a good thing. This is why we hate taxes, right? I mean, it's just, it's just throwing money into the black hole of inefficient, ineffective, in some cases immoral government spending. It kills us to see our money wasted like that. Well, do you know what the resurrection of Christ declares? Not one penny giving, given toward the cause of Christ is in vain. It is money invested in a cause that has proven, decisively proven itself to be exclusively true, ultimately worthy, and perfectly effectual. So what looks like irresponsibility in our text is perfectly responsible through the lens of the resurrection. So question for us is this. Is the resurrection as true today as it was the weeks after it happened? Do you truly believe that Jesus is risen from the dead? We say yes. Christians say yes, of course. But we live lives of functional cynicism. And do you know how I know that? Our finances. The reason Jesus talked about money more than anything else is because money is the truest indicator of our hearts. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. Simply put, your account statement mirrors what you love and what you truly believe in. And so does your account statement look like Jesus is risen from the dead? Probably not. I was convicted over mine. But instead of shaming you for the disconnect between what we confess to be true and what our account says we actually believe is true, let me inspire you again with what's true. Brothers and sisters, Jesus of Nazareth is risen from the dead. This gathering that we do every week, this is not wishful thinking. We're not playing games here. This is actually true. You know that, right? All of it is true. Jesus is God, and there is no other. He is victorious. His kingdom shall triumph. The church shall never perish. The gospel shall never fail. And yes, this all ends happily ever after in a resurrected, perfect world without end. Amen. It's all true. Now, you tell me where better to invest your money. Nothing is more responsible than to give irresponsibly to the cause that has proven itself to be true and triumphant. So yeah, it doesn't make sense. But in light of the resurrection, it makes perfect sense. But the implications go further. Not only does the resurrection guarantee our generosity is responsible, it also means it is rewarded. Let's just 
Can we all just be honest with ourselves for a moment? Not overcomplicate our struggle with generosity. We like our money. And it's tough to give it away. But I would suggest that it's not money per se. But what money provides. Money is just a means to do something much deeper. Again, like Jesus says, the, the, the indicator of our truest desires. So it's not money that we like. We like the pleasure money can provide. It's not money. It's the esteem and praise that money provides. It's not money. It's the comfort and security that money provides. And on and on I could go. You see, money is the earthly currency by which we obtain the deeper longings of our heart. And that's why generosity is so difficult for us. We're not giving up money. We're giving up pleasure and comfort and security and popularity and power and whatever else has captured your heart. And here is why that observation is important. When we define money on this deeper level, then we open ourselves up to the plausibility of freedom from money's grip. Because then we can ask ourselves, well, if it's not about money, it's about the deeper things, then is there a better means available? I'm not going to insult your intelligence. Money is great. Nice things are enjoyable. A robust retirement plan is comforting. Money is great. But is there a better way is the question. This community in our passage believed that they had discovered something better than anything wealth can provide. And what it did is it dethroned wealth's power over their lives. And that is to say, they wouldn't be acting this way. They wouldn't have given up what they had if they didn't really think they actually found something better. And in the resurrection, that's exactly what they discovered. This is the connection to the resurrection. It was not viewed in this community as an isolated event, but as the first event of many. Not as the happy ending to Jesus' story, but as the beginning of a global happy ending. Paul describes it as a first fruit. The first blossom of a resurrection harvest that is certain to come. As certain as Jesus is risen from the dead, so certain is the harvest to come. So the point is that in the resurrection, they not only saw their truth, point one, they also saw their very destiny, the point I'm making here. And the surety of that resurrection destiny overwhelmed the paltry offerings of this world. That's what Jesus promised. When Jesus confronted the wealthy man and said, give it all up and follow me, he walked away and said, because he had great riches, he couldn't give it up for Jesus. And then Peter, being Peter, said, well, what about us? We gave everything to follow you. And Jesus said, no, you didn't. You haven't given up a thing. Why? Jesus says, everyone who gives up house, brother, sister, mother, father, children, property for my sake, will receive back a hundredfold in the age to come, in the age of the resurrection, So get your mind off money because it's not about the money. Instead, 
Name the deeper desire behind the money. Name that which you fear to lose in your struggle with generosity and whatever you name, multiply it by a hundred and behold the certainty of your destiny. Let's spend some time doing that. Dreaming of the eschaton. What's behind money? You like pleasure and luxury? And you fear a change in lifestyle? Of course that can be unhealthy. But instead of shaming it, I want to ask you to indulge it a hundredfold. I ask you to imagine a resurrected body with capacities of joy beyond your wildest imagination. Resurrected taste buds. Resurrected eyes. Resurrected ears. Resurrected touch and smell. And an eternity to rightly indulge the resurrected goodness of a resurrected life. And we're just talking about five senses here. Tim Keller argues from when, when we get a picture of Jesus' resurrected body that it is physical like ours, but boy, it's something else. And that physical body is just appearing in walls and stuff. And his point is, is we just know five senses. We're going to have hundreds of senses. We're going to have experiences and pleasures and joy and satisfaction that we can't even comprehend. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, to quote the scriptures. You have no idea how enjoyable life can be, but you will. You like admiration? You like people to think well of you? And you fear to give up your wealth, which has always been the source of that admiration? Of course, that can be unhealthy. But instead of shaming it, I ask you to indulge it a hundredfold. You have no idea what it will be like to be admired in healthy ways. You raised in resurrected splendor, radiating with your unique image of God and every single person who sees you will be stunned by how glorious you are. They will be tempted to bow down and worship you as C.S. Lewis says and you'll have to say, nah, get up, it's about Jesus. You will be so admired. And if that's not enough, an eternal destiny enveloped by the favor and and admiration of the triune God. Do you like power and control? And you fear that to give your money will mean to give up your source of strength and, and leverage? Of course that can be unhealthy, but instead of shaming it, I ask you to indulge it 100 fold. You will, you will reign as resurrected kings and queens of the new heavens and the new earth. Oh, how noble and powerful you shall be. And you will rule with gallant dominion and creation will gladly bow down to your reign, knowing that your reign is forever good, selfless, and loving. Do you like security? Fear the future, fear that giving your money is to give up your future security. Of course, that can be unhealthy, but instead of shaming it, indulge it 100-fold. Oh, how safe you are going to be. In the resurrected creation, Satan and his evil empire will be cast into hellfire where they belong, never to touch us again. No sin, no crime, No market crashes, no poverty, no injustice, no threats, no sickness, no death. To quote the hymn, 
No chilling winds nor poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore when sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more. That's, that's security. Eternal security while we worry about our retirement portfolios. Now, after that brief foray into resurrection indulgence, come back to reality and tell me, as you look around at this fallen reality, are you not exceedingly unimpressed? Friends, I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that money can't buy happiness because it can. To quote the uh, lyrical genius of one country song I heard this week, um, I know everybody says money can't buy happiness, but it can buy me a boat. That makes me happy. Absolutely money can give you happiness. A whole lot of misery, too. Another sermon for another day. But yes, money can give you happiness, but it cannot give you resurrection happiness. And so what we are left with are two potential pathways to the desires of our heart. Money and the resurrection. The former will give you a taste. The latter, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, brothers and sisters, in view not just of the cross but of the resurrection, when it comes to generosity, what are you scared of? What have you to fear? I know you want to be generous, but now I say, what is standing in the way? That's your discussion question. If your parish groups are meeting this evening, why not become this? Why not? What's standing in the way? Name it and then view it through the resurrection lens and see what that does to it. What have you to fear in your giving? The resurrection says nothing. The cross is our reason to be generous. But the resurrection is our power to be generous. There is nothing to fear. So let's just get crazy. Like those in our passage. Let me pray. Lord, I pray, as I already have, I pray that you would meet us wherever we are with application. For some, that may just be a commitment to tithing. For some, that may mean a crazy act of generosity like we see in this passage. For some, that may be just opening up their home and resources in generous ways. Whatever the applications, we trust you with it. But I pray that we would be known as a local church community that doesn't make sense by the level of generosity and giving that is taking place. Every week as we come to the table, every week we proclaim Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ shall come again. We believe that, Lord. May it, may it be seen in our giving. Strengthen us now through the sacrament. In Jesus' name, amen.